Dial. Dove. Nivea. Irish Spring. Zest. Old Spice. Target brand. Walmart brand. <laughs> what do these things have in common? They're all types of soaps. Wait, this is a physical therapy podcast. Should we really talk about soap? Of course. It's a clean family environment, Dan. Excellent. Stay tuned as we dive deep into soap. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast series. Dan and Paul joined together once again, as well as uh, via phone, Andrew Walquist from Texas and Jen Lee from the Year of Good. Welcome back, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So as we alluded to in our introduction, we are going to uh, do a four-part series here uh, on soap. It's something that uh, Andrew and I have kind of been talking about for some time and feel that it would be valuable for our listeners to hear from some experienced clinicians on our thought process, on our evolution, on, uh, on the soap. Uh, you know, it's something that probably in PT school, it got pounded into our head and it was like, yeah, whatever, you know, we have to do this. And now sometimes as, as professionals, we kind of just go through the motions and just get it done. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking about first subjective and then we'll do objective assessment plan moving forward. So stay tuned for the first, for a four part series. So as you get that new patient and you're sitting through your subjective exam, what do you really have as your end goal in mind for your subjective exam? Andrew? Essentially what I'm looking for whenever I do subjective exams, I want to know who the patient really is. I feel like that's probably my number one goal in terms of giving a subjective evaluation. Get to know their story, get to know how I can join their story to get them better. Um, also, I love to know, and with that, with their story, getting to know their goals and ultimately what they want to get back to. Um, of course, there's other red flag symptoms that I like to ask about in certain situations and just hear more about their detailed past of post-surgical past. But after that, then I like to get them moving, which I know that's a later podcast. <laughs> it absolutely is. I agree with you. Um, my What I tell all my students that I have is I go my subjective is I can get any information I want later, but they have to come back for me to get that information. So my big goal is develop rapport and make sure they come back. Paul, what about you? Uh, make sure they're in the right place. What do you mean by that? They should be in physical therapy. So basically, <laughs> a lot of what a lot of what Andrew said. I'm going to make sure there's no red flags, nothing significant. Um, past that, I can't really say I have much more. I'm attempting to achieve my subjective. At the end of the entire evaluation, I just want to know one thing, and I want to have one thing. The one thing I want to know is what am I going to do with the first treatment, the first session, and I can assess where that goes. And then what I want to have is the buy-in of the patient. Now, personally, I think that comes, at least in my mind, more in the education of my plan in the assessment phase. I utilize information I get in the subjective exam, but I kind of accumulate that information as I go. So honestly, my goal for the subjective before I transition, and I don't think there's any true transition, I think everything is always in flux, but if you want to break things segmentally up and transition it, 
I'm going to say my goal is make sure they're in the right place. AKA they don't need imaging or mm-hmm. rule something else out that is big, nasty, gnarly, and outside my scope of practice. So that's why you're the king of the 37-second subjective exam? Uh, 42. 42 second. Ooh, Andrew, you made him increase it by five seconds. Five seconds. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. So I want to pose a question. <clears throat> so, you know, you guys kind of said establish rapport, get buy-in, get them to come back, figure out one thing. How long did it take you to get to that point? Because that's definitely not what they taught us in school. In school, they gave us a laundry list of 17,000 questions to ask and all these things to make sure that you address. But that's not at all what I heard you guys say. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, like most things in in my life, Dan, I've learned by a lot of failure. I, I know that there's some times in which I would go through the first, you know, hundred questions that I was supposed to ask, realize, man, a half an hour has gone by and I haven't even done anything actually with the patient other than talk to them. And, and realizing, is that the best use of, of my skills? Is that the best use of the patient's time? Is that the, is that a really even a, a good billable code? Can I, can I look at the insurance square in the eye and say that I did, I did a service of evaluation just by talking to them. And so, um, after a lot of reflection, that's how I, how to take that bigger step back and say, okay, what, what is this really here for? What, what do I need to do to really get that patient leaving happy and and healthier than when they walked in? Right. I mean, I came out of school and my brain was, okay, I have these questions and I need to get these questions answered and I need to do it in 15 minutes or less. And oh my gosh. And I hope I don't forget anything. And it took probably, two to three years to realize this needs to be a comfortable conversation. These people need to entrust me with movement. Literally right after we have this conversation, they need to be relaxed when they move. They need to show me what they can and can't do. And to be able to do that, they need to actually trust me and feel comfortable around me. And not a lot of people are comfortable with movement um, like we are. And so I feel like it's taken, huh, I'm still working on it. How do, how do you sit in a subjective with somebody and have this split in your brain between I want to make sure that you trust me, you're comfortable with me, and we develop a rapport, um, and, oh, by the way, I'm also thinking about are there red flags? Where do I want to go with this? Is this where I wanted to go whenever I would when I sat down before I got them in the waiting, got them from the waiting room? Is this the same direction I want to go? Am I changing it? And there's so many different layers of that that I feel like it takes time just to, to even start to develop. It is most certainly a skill that needs to be developed. And I'm, I'm sure if I could go back and watch myself from when I first graduated to now, it, I hope I was never as robotic as some things I see where it's literally, <laughs> let's just read out whatever the documentation requests in front of me word for word and see what the patient says as I stare blankly wondering what in the world I'm talking about. But just as we know that five shoulder external impingement diagnoses all could have different movement impairments and issues, five people with the same background, same issue are going to present in different ways, personality-wise, etc. And you're always learning when people come in, you start recognizing more readily, all right, who's that patient that's really sick of 
seeing seven specialists, doctors spending four minutes with them, and no one understanding the full scope of their issues. And sometimes the subjective is literally taking 10 minutes to do nothing but let the patient talk and talk and tell you their entire history. And they think, wow, this is the first person that's actually listened to me in some capacity. That can be invaluable moving forward. Or you recognize the people that are like, I don't even know why I'm here. Sometimes the verbal confrontation of that is not the right way to go and just getting them moving and them showing them themselves what the issues are is there. So it's a skill that you learn. My patient is presenting to me with this personality type. How can I address that quickly instead of finding out three sessions in that, oh, crud, maybe didn't go the right route to get this patient's understanding and buy-in right away and that's why they currently no-showed me this very second. Yeah, I think I think you bring up a great point there, Paul, especially about that person that walks in and says, you know what, I have no idea why I'm here. My doctor said I had to go to physical therapy. Let's spend a little time discussing and maybe even bringing in a couple examples of, of some opportunities and some situations where you had that patient in front of you and you use something in your subjective exam to get them to turn the corner. Right. Well, to tell you the truth, Dan, that actually just happened to me this morning with an eval. Uh, I bring the guy back. I'm um, treating him for on the script says right lateral epicondylitis, and and I sit him down, and he said, you know, he's like, you know, he's like, I, I really mean no no offense, you know, but I'm I'm here just to maybe get a couple of ideas because um, I my, my overall take on physical therapy is that. I can do 90% of, of all this at home, and, and really that extra 10% isn't even that, that important. But I'm just wanting to, uh, you know, I, I don't really know why I'm here other, other than the doctor told me. And so that was, I mean, I'm glad that he was open and honest right away. And, and whenever that happens, I like to, number one, appreciate that patient for that kind of brutal honesty. Because, you know, I wonder how many patients we have that are thinking that the whole entire time, but are not as old enough exactly. to actually say that. And so whenever someone's bold enough like that, I say, well, thank you. You know, you know, that that's awesome. And then after just a few more um, minutes in the subjective evaluation, trying to understand the whole entire picture of his whole entire body, not necessarily his elbow, he started to say something about how he occasionally has, has back pain. I'm like, oh, you know, is that, is it your left low back? And I'm like, that's why I told him. He's like, yeah, how, how do you know that? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, in back of my mind, I'm like, okay, well, that's a typical pattern chain reaction biomechanics that can that can show that kind of stuff but but just from that i had a little bit more buy-in and then as i went through the objective portion having him move like what paul said having his body kind of show him what we needed to do then all of a sudden he had a lot of buy-in and just just as he was bold to kind of criticize our whole entire profession of physical therapy afterwards he paid me a huge compliment and just said you know you you spent more time with me than any other PT I've ever had combined, you know, I, you have restored my faith in the physical therapy profession. And that was a huge come. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back at all. Um, but I'm just saying, because ultimately it was, I believe it wasn't anything magical in the sauce. I listened to him. I, and then I went, I, I went and did the best with my job. And at the very end, just as he was bold enough to, to give me cri- the criticism of the whole entire profession, he was quick enough to say, Oh, well, I'm going to take that back for right now. And I'm going to keep an open mind. Well, and I think you yeah, said, awesome. you also alluded to something that was really subtle, but it's, it's a major point. You ask questions beyond just what he was coming in for. 
right? Right. You ask questions about him as an individual and him as is what he, he enjoys to do in his life. And then you found out that he had back pain as well. And that right there, that little bit of extra time that you took to ask those few extra questions made a difference. And I want to make sure that we highlight that because that's a, that's a huge success that oftentimes, and I'm guilty of it too, where I'm just like, you know what? I'm tired. This is my fourth eval today. This person clearly doesn't want to be here. And so I'm not going to give them that much time. But how often then do we miss an opportunity to get a lifelong patient or truly make a difference in somebody's life? Uh, General Paul, any, yeah. any success stories that you guys want to highlight on that patient who that kind of walks in and is like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I'm here. Um, I don't know why, how you can help me. I'm just here because my doctor said I had to be. I think to you guys' credit, I mean... I do the same thing. I don't, if I hear somebody say that to me, I don't immediately go into the defensive and this is why you should be here. Um, I generally like to focus very global, looking into the medical history, um, what else is going on with you, because people don't write it all in the past medical history sheet. They're never going to write it all because they frankly don't know everything that we know and what we do. And so I, I ask in detail any issues here, 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 based off of what they're telling me from the reason that they're in to see me. Um, and then whatever I pick up, you know, what things cause you pain? Okay, it hurts whenever I golf. Okay, so maybe whenever you go into, is it your backswing or is it your follow-through? Well, it's, it's my backswing. So it would make sense that when you go into your backswing that that would put more stress on that side of your back, and that might be why you're avoiding it and pushing through, and your elbow might be hurting because of that. Does that make sense? People put those things together in their minds before they ever get to see us. They understand the body as a domino effect. They may not understand the extent of it, but they get that things are connected. And when they start to see that it's connected, they you can just see it in their eyes like, oh, my gosh, they're going to think through this this deeply. Like, that's exciting. And like you had said, that's the first person that spent this much time really thinking about me specifically and what I need to do. Yeah, I think both of you guys hit on something really important, which is you have to own it. You have to own the criticism, uh, for better or for worse, historically in PT or even currently in PT, there are many therapists that do us a great disservice. And there are plenty of therapists out there that, for whatever reason, are providing physical therapy, and I hesitate in even calling it that, but <laughs> providing something that's nothing more akin than a handout of exercises that you could do 90% of it on your own, and that last 10, 10% does not matter. Um, so I think it is important to recognize that we do sometimes have to combat not only the perception of what they think therapy is, but combat what they have actually experienced therapy having been. Um, and uh, again, I think you guys gave, gave good examples. One I also tend to see is the patient that comes in and doesn't know why they're there because they literally don't know why they're there because it's not something they traditionally associate physical therapy with. My easiest example is basically every vestibular patient that I see. Uh, but I mean, this could go to women's sure. health. This could go to visceral mobilization. This could go to any number of specialties where you're like, hold on, I'm dizzy and you want me to do exercises? I don't understand how these things come together. And again, you kind of read the patient and their personality. But my conversation typically goes somewhere along the lines of, you know, you're asking the exact right question. That's exactly why you're here today. I want to take a look, see what I think is going on, see what I think I can do, discuss this with you. Have you and I in complete agreement of, what it is we're trying to accomplish here, how we were going to accomplish it, when we expect to accomplish it, and make sure that we are both on the same page and comfortable with that plan moving forward. Obviously, it needs subtle tweaks depending on the person, but I tend to find like, oh, 
okay, he's he wants my input and my agreement in this. Okay, that's fair. I'm I'm gonna listen to what he has to say and then go into all the things you two have already mentioned to get said agreements. Yeah, well, kind of what you said there it sounds a lot like where we were taught informed consent. You want the patient on board. Mm-hmm. I agreed. Right. I agreed completely. You're saying what could happen, what we expect. The patient is agreeing to that plan, and they are ready to move forward with it. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I also so think, then, I think he also alluded to another question that I want to pose in, is how, how do you guys manage that the patient goal statement when they say, well, I want to walk again and it's been seven years since they walked or, you know, I don't want to be dizzy again or, you know, I really have no idea what my goals are (laughs) because like Paul alluded to, they don't really know why they're here. Um, kind of talk me through maybe some journeys of, of patients and, and their statements and their goals and, and either, being like, you know what, that is actually really realistic because you're in the right place and I know I can help you with that. Or saying, you know what, not sure that that goal is the most realistic in the world based on what your past medical history is, but anything's possible. Um, you know, give me some give me some examples on that. Well, personally, I um, probably tend to use active listening a lot more in that scenario. If I sat with somebody and for 10 minutes they've told me, that they sit most of the day, they haven't walked in seven years. Um, I'm, I'm active listening and I'm telling them that as I'm explaining. So what I'm hearing from you is this is what you haven't been able to do for this long. So what we can realistically expect is that you're not going to be able to do that very quickly. It's going to take some time, if at all, if this is going to happen. What we need to do is we need to break down what are the components of needing to be able to walk. You have to be able to get out of a chair. You have to be able to shift your weight through one leg. You have to be able to shift your weight through the other. You have to be able to control your body against gravity. And we have to assess how you're doing with all of these different things first. That's partly what we're going to get to today. And that will give me a realistic expectation for if I think that's going to be something that we can get to. Um, And then at that point, I can go in and assess them and come out on the other end and and understand, do I think this is going to be realistic or am am I going to have to reframe it? I really like the word you use there with the active listening. Um, it sounds easy to say, and a lot of times we think we are, but I know that recently I just took a Con Ed course, a visceral mobility course at the IPA, where one of the instructors there, Heather, uh, was talking about being present with your patient. And she even takes it to the extent that she does not have her computer in front of her during any point of the evaluation. Um, I typically tend to put it to the side, but even the subjective component, I've gotten to the point where I can type without ever looking at the keyboard. I stare at the, the, the patient, but I even tend to find there are still times where I think my gaze might drift or I even see the patient kind of shift and maybe catch my eyes. And it's amazing what active listening and being as present as possible, even something as small as maybe moving the computer out of the way, which seems contradictory to what everyone teaches you when you look at time management, but take that time to get the patient buy-in. Take that time to show the patient that you are there to listen to them, to work with them, to be a part of the team that needs to get them back to where they want to be, I think that can be huge and sometimes, again, not not fully appreciated. And that might help you when you have that patient that doesn't know their goals, like Dan said, that doesn't know where they want to be or has a completely unrealistic goal. If you're starting to build that connection right off the bat, it becomes easier to have that conversation of, you know, I really think it's a great thing to work towards. We will, however, here's the realistic time frame what I think you can achieve. Or, 
here's what I think. What do you feel about this? And again, make sure that, as Andrew said, they are agreeing to it, but we can help guide them. And that is our professional responsibility to let people know. I'm never going to tell someone, no, you can't achieve that. But I'm not afraid to say, you know, you haven't walked in seven years. We need to understand what type of time frame we're talking about and what therapy is going to achieve and what tools I will give you if you do your part of the equation to work on this outside of here as well. So even in that subjective evaluation, you're already planting the seeds of their responsibility, it sounds, Paul. Most definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that there's a, you know, that that component there, whether, whether you want to call that subjective or assessment or part of your plan or part of your education of getting them to understand that, look, that's your goal. Here's the things that, and here's the tools that I'm going to give you, but it's still on you. You, you might see me two to three hours a week, right? You're going to be in therapy two to three hours. Maybe if you're lucky and somebody has a lot of flexibility, maybe you can get them there for four hours a week. But I mean, there's a lot more hours in the week than there are that they're spending with us. So, you know, I think to go back to, you know, managing that person that says, well, I don't know why I'm here. And, you know, Andrew's story about that patient saying, well, 90% of this I can do on my own. Well, yeah, that's great. You know that you can do 90% of this on your own. And guess what? I need you to do 90% of this on your own, but I'm not just going to give you a cookie cutter handout. I'm not just going to go and, and grab the lateral epicondylitis HEP out of the file cabinet because, you know what, that's not going to make a connection to that guy. Um, so, so having coming full circle to, to managing that patient's goal statements plus that patient who says, you know what, I'm not really sure. I, I really think it comes back to what Paul alluded to, and that's being present. And that's making sure that they feel valued and they feel heard. And you know what? Sometimes that is only 37 seconds and sometimes that's 15 or 20 minutes. Um, you know, most of the time I can get through a subjective eval in 10 to 15 minutes, but I had a patient a month ago that it was a 55 minute subjective eval, uh, because he needed it. He truly needed to tell me his entire medical history. That was important to him and his wife. And it was kind of one of those where some of my colleagues were like, wow, you didn't get anything accomplished. I said, no, actually I did get a lot accomplished. I know what this guy wants. And I know how to help him. Right. Um, so then. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so I, I mean, <clears throat> I think that that active listening, that buy-in and that establishing rapport is going to take a whole host of ranges. I mean, you know, sitting next to Paul three days a week and watching him treat patients. A lot of the patients that come in to see him already know what he's going to do because they've heard about him word of mouth. They've seen him before. He's seen them, right? He's seen their family members or whatever. That's completely different than walking into somebody who has never experienced physical therapy or has experienced bad physical therapy and you're their fourth or their fifth or their sixth stop. Right. And that's true. I mean, when you work in a place for, like I've been here for eight years. And so a lot of my patients, probably over 50% of my evals are people I've seen before or know through someone else. And it's, it's different when you've seen them before and you know how they you know, are and they know how you are and things can kind of speed up at that point because you're familiar with medical history and how, they done, how they've done with treatment before. My question is for you guys, same subject as the talker, 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 and I'm talking and it's not all helpful information. How do you handle somebody that is just talking and you need to move on? 
That's a perfect question, Jen, because I was just wanting to say, you know, disclaimer, just because we want to hear what people have to say and hear their history doesn't always mean it's a good thing. You have to be able to recognize (laughs) when you've heard about their 13th, you know, cousin and their eighth grandchild and what their dog's favorite squeaky toy is, you're probably not treading down a path of success at this point in time. You are just hearing them talk because they have no one else to talk to in their lives. So there is an importance of recognition. And part of it, again, is a is a skill. I, I don't know if I could give you a classification of what patients do need to be listened to and what don't. I think you could break it down a little bit into, you know, you have your complex pain uh, type of individuals, you have your chronic pain type of individuals, the ones that a lot is going on, or you see their health history, and there's just a thousand things driven, written everywhere. Those might need a little more time, complex injuries, etc. Um a lot of it, though, is just saying, you know, what's the information I'm hearing and does it pertain or does it not? And when it doesn't, you kind of have to just learn how to step in, cut them off and say, hey, how about this? Or what do you do with this? So that's really cool. That's awesome. And then when you're going through other parts of the evaluation, the objective component, don't be afraid to swing back and ask more about their 13th cousin that they apparently care so deeply you understand. Because what will happen is they'll forget that you cut not cut them off, but professionally and appropriately directed them in the right path earlier, especially swing back to it. And you'll get the information you need in a timely fashion. And the patient will leave thinking, wow, they actually spent time to ask me about family and other stuff that most people couldn't care less about. So I'm never afraid to stop immediately because I know that I can use that as a patient buy-in because they show in research when patients like you, they tend to feel better even if they're not objectively improving. And that, that liking you can be a huge piece of patient success. Yeah, I think that's something yep. that when I've spent time mentoring with therapists, and this is, a, this is an, a range of experiences, sometimes they're like, oh my gosh, it seems like every time I treat one of your patients, they just unload on me. And I said, okay, is that a bad thing? Well, no, it's not. You know, because they're taking a subjective, you know, every time a patient comes in, right? This isn't just eval, but it's how do you utilize that time? Like Paul said, can you do it while they're warming up? Can you do it while they're stretching? Can you do it while you're doing your manual techniques or your FMR techniques? Can you integrate those two things together? And and, and like Paul said, I think that's definitely a, a, an art and a skill that takes a lot of time, but it takes conscious thought. Sometimes my hardest subjective evals are people that I've treated for the last seven years. Because all they want to do is catch up. They don't actually want to tell me why they're there to hear me, to see me, right? So um, I think that's definitely something worth evolving and, and, and working on and being very aware of. Right. Paul, I really do like your strategy on not necessarily, well, if you cut them off, you remember what they're talking about and you just come around at some later point and just to show that, that, that you do care about that. <clears throat> something else right. I want to add into that. Um, that I that I've found as a useful strategy to me is kind of the inverse of what you do to get that to be that really that present person. You said whenever you want to make sure that you're present, you you kind of have the computer to your side, you remove that physical barriers, you know, you have that eye contact. That's great for the buy-in. Occasionally, uh, using the same negative parts of that uh, to to politely maneuver the situation to where then. If, if they're talking to you that much, then I sometimes change my nonverbals. I might cross my arms a little bit. I might cross my legs a little bit. I might move a little bit towards my computer or something like that. Sometimes for a lot of people, those little nonverbal cues are enough for them to realize, oh, yeah, I've been on this tangent for a while. That, that if you keep that same like gaze right. on gaze focus 
then they'll talk to you at, at nauseum. But sometimes if you, you know, you don't have to go as far as look down at your watch and look back up at them. That, that would be more than just a subtle cue. But even sometimes a little nonverbal cues for some people, whether or not they're even aware of it, that clicks in them and saying, oh, yeah, um, I, I should get kind of back on track. And then it's easier to redirect that conversation. I agree. Any intense conversation that you're in where both people are actively listening to each other, there's a noticeable connection that's happening. And any break in that connection, whether it be I move or I shift my stool this way or I turn slightly, I I notice as, okay, are you uncomfortable? Did I do something? Like if I'm the patient, then I'm noticing that you're moving and that this is a different kind of vibe than we had before. And I'm going to pick up on that as, oh, you know, <laughs> So definitely valuable. And that's one of the main things that I use if I get somebody that's kind of talking my ear off. And I think it's funny and I, I love everything you guys are saying and I feel like I'm going to shift gears here real quick. But there's one thing I really want to talk about that I think is unbelievably important and that is word choice when you are asking questions to your patients. And for example, mm-hmm. you know, we all can probably think back. We all had that professor in PT school that you asked them to do something like raise your arm and they do it in a, I don't want to say wrong, but completely asinine variation of it. Like no one would ever do that. Then you get in the real world and realize, oh my gosh, people are even worse than that. This is, <laughs> this is mind boggling. Well, the same thing applies to the subjective. Way too often I hear, is there anything else I should know? Well, it goes back to Andrew's example. A lot of times people don't even recognize that the hip plays a big role in the back. They, they see things very segmentally. What they think you should know might have nothing to do with anything. It's amazing how many times I'll ask someone, Hey, you know, what else, what else do you have in your history that even unrelated things or what else can you tell me that's happened through this ex- specific uh, region that has nothing to do with this? Let's start talking about, oh yeah, I had insert random ectomy here, cholecystectomy, appendectomy, et cetera. And their problem is, you know, they have back pain. You look and they've got massive incisions and what people don't correlate together can have a massive impact on how we want to treat them. So I've gotten to the point where I always like to say, you know, what else can you tell me? What else has happened? I like to somewhere sneak in, sneak into the conversation. I would rather know too much than not enough. I will always use the words, what else can you tell me that is not related or has nothing to do with this? Because it's amazing how much it has something to do with it. Do you all have any terms you either like to avoid or you like to use, you find, help you uncover information that may have otherwise remained hidden from your knowledge? Hmm. I think some of my patients struggle with, you know, just getting focused on the pain aspect. And I know at, there's been a couple podcasts you guys have talked about pain and maybe the of avoiding the, the word pain, in which I can definitely see the merits of that. But re, the foundational idea is that patients can just get consumed with this, that this hurts. And when you ask them, what is your goal? They say, get rid of my pain. And that's, and that's you know, a, val- a valid a, a response to them. But does that really guide you on whether – their therapy episode is going to be successful. Well, minimize the the reality that they're going to that they're going to come back once you get their pain gone. I I one of the phrases I like to use with my patients when they say, "Yeah, just get rid of my pain." I say, "Okay, if I could take away your pain away today, right now, how would you be living your life differently?" And that for me gives me a lot of useful information about what they actually want to get back to. Oh. Well, if I didn't have pain, man, I would be, I'd still go on my walks every single morning or I'd play tennis, you know, on, on the weekends like, like I normally did. And some of that, which is amazing to me, they, they tend to omit from some of their subjectives. Some patients do just because they're almost too consumed with their pain. And so with that information, not only does that help guide what I'm going to look at objectively 
Because if it's a tennis player, I'll probably be looking at tennis-specific kind of motions. But it also helps me connect with that patient a little bit more in the heart, just be able to talk about a couple things that that are tennis-related. Let them teach me a couple things about tennis because I'm no tennis big guru. You know, and that opens up a whole new level of buy-in with the patient. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I ask a similar type question to Paul where it's like any other pertinent medical history activities that you enjoy that you can't do um even things that you know might seem unrelated uh could be related i mean i had a i had a conversation with a patient today who was like oh yeah well i've had this women's health related issue for 11 years and i'm like that would have been a really useful piece of information to know 20 minutes ago because i could have had you be evaluated or at least examined by a women's health specialist today. You know, little things like that that sometimes don't come up, but it's also sometimes it's my own barriers to ask those questions that stop me from helping a patient. And sometimes it's a patient not wanting to divulge that information to us. Oh, completely. I mean, if a patient's coming in for SI pain, they probably don't want to talk about their urinary urge or incontinence or leakage or insert other, you know, issue, bowel bladder issue here. However, as we know, if we talk about just where those muscles connect, how much of a massive impact addressing that issue might have in impacting the SI pain that has chronically been there for 15 plus years post childbirth. And you start putting all these things together and patients really appreciate you going into depth. Mm-hmm. But like Dan said, they're not going to voluntarily divulge that information right off the bat, whether it's A, embarrassment, B, a complete miss, uh, un, just don't understand how they work together or you know, see some other factor that plays right. in there. Well, I think an easy way to merge into that conversation, because I agree it's not an easy, they're not easy questions to ask. You have pain with sex, bowel and bladder issues. They're not easy questions to ask, but for me, I can, I can easily, more easily merge into it if I use their past medical history form and I say, okay, I see here you've had three pregnancies, you've had gallbladder removal, you had cancer, what kind of cancer was it? So asking follow-up questions, is there anything else that you haven't written on the sheet because you didn't think it was important for me to know because I want to know things? Okay, well, yeah, I did have this, and I did have that. And it's easier at those in those times when you're already talking about medical history and they realize that you care and you're actually intently looking at what, what they've gone through in their life that those questions are easier to ask for me. Yeah, I mean, I think... We've we've kind of uncovered some some points here in our professional journeys. You know, the four of us for our listeners on on additional components to hit for the subjective exam, and actually it plays perfectly into what we're going to talk about next, which is the objective exam on our next podcast. Um, thanks, Andrew and Jen and Paul for joining us on this one. And hopefully, our our listeners found some nuggets that they can apply immediately with some patients and, and take some time to self-reflect on their own subjective exam and, and how they can make modifications to, to garner uh, better information and establish better rapport with their, with their, with their patients. Um, so again, as always, if you have any feedback, uh, email us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. I just want to say that this podcast has made me very uncomfortable. Um, I don't like long subjectives, and this is now one of our longest <laughs> podcasts. So I feel like we should have like wrapped this up and gone to the next podcast like 25 <laughs> minutes ago. I just want that to be on the record. I've talked to you for far too long. I- exactly. I can't handle this. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned for the next three parts of our soap discussion. <laughs>